And the motion picture is the most important art film ever devised by the human race. It is the, the art form that creates more empathy than any other. It creates our ability to step out of our own shoes. Welcome to The Great Movies Pod, a retrospective film review show, the podcast where we watch and discuss each of the films covered in Roger Ebert's seminal film essay collection, The Great Movies. I'm Jana Gardner. I'm Nick Fulton. And I'm Dylan Coyer. This week, we are going to be discussing the film Apocalypse Now. Apocalypse Now is a 1979 American epic war film directed, produced, and co-written by Francis Ford Coppola. It stars Marlon Brando, Robert Duvall, Martin Sheen, Frederick Forrest, Albert Hall, Sam Bottoms, a very young Lawrence Fishburne, Harrison Ford, and Dennis Hopper. The screenplay was co-written by Coppola and John Milius and featured a narration written by Michael Herr. It was loosely based on the 1899 novella Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad, uh, which is set in 19th century Congo, obviously was updated to be the Vietnam War. The film follows a river journey from South Vietnam into Cambodia, undertaken by Captain Benjamin Willard, uh, who's played by Martin Sheen, and he's on a secret mission to assassinate Colonel Kurtz, Marlon Brando, a renegade army special forces officer accused of murder and who is presumed insane. And a lot of things happen on that journey. <laughs> a lot. It's so, long. Quite, quite a few things. It's a long journey. A lot of things happen along the way. Um, Ebert has a, a note in his essay that I think is true where he says that basically it's, you know, a series of great sequences with this connecting thread of the river mm -hmm. journey. Um, so, yeah, let's get into it. Um, I'll start. This was my first time seeing Apocalypse Now, like it so often is with these movies. Um, I had meant to see it for years. My dad loves it. Um, loves war all movies. Dads do. Vietnam mm -hmm. war movies. Yeah, my dad uh, fought in Vietnam. And so he has all kinds of, you know, stories and things like that. And so I had just never particularly been interested um, in it, mostly because it seemed long and I thought it would be boring. It was not boring, um, at least not to me. So I watched it actually a couple of weeks ago and have had some time to revisit it a little bit, watch some of the special features, do some digging. Um, so yeah, it's been, it's been good. Dylan, what was your previous experience and coming back to this movie? Well, um, it's been a long time since I've seen this movie because mainly I just haven't felt the desire or the <laughs> need to revisit it. Um, it was probably one of the first R-rated movies that my dad showed me, because it's one of his favorites as well. Um, I remember it kind of being a bit overwhelming at the time for me, at that age. And um, How old do you think you were when you first saw it? <sighs> Seven. <laughs> no. No, my parents were pretty strict. Um, probably 13 or 14. Okay. I remember back Still. in the old day of early Netflix, um, they'd have like recommended ages um, oh. labeled for each movie, oh, and my parents would try to go with those um, because maybe an R-rated movie is just rated R for like language and nothing mm -hmm. else. At which point, like, like it would not get a much. very high Netflix um, right. rating. Um, that one was one of the first that was like, I think we got that in The Godfather pretty quickly. And I was definitely younger than the ages on that one because I remember looking and being like, ooh. 
I'm not supposed to be watching this, but we are. So that was my first experience. Um, coming back to it, it was interesting. Nick? Uh, I'd seen this at least a couple times before. I don't even remember the first time I saw it. I remember the last time I saw it was maybe five, six years ago uh, watching it. it. I remember watching it in the basement of my old place because Nelly had never seen it before. But, yeah, I've seen it at least twice. I don't know. I probably saw it for the first time in high school. I, it seems <laughs> like a one of the movies that me and my friends would have watched in high school, especially, like, we were all very into The Godfather, so... Um, we probably would have done this in the conversation as a part of like a Francis Ford Coppola thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's that's what's so interesting about why I, I don't know why I hadn't seen it till now. The Godfather was like my favorite movie of all time. It was my first favorite movie. Um, I was a bit obsessed with it when I was younger. I probably saw it when I was like 13. Mm-hmm. I think probably around that age I saw The Godfather. I remember my parents telling me to like, go to the other room in the beginning when Sonny's having the affair <laughs> like at the wedding where there's like a quick sex scene with Sonny at the beginning and they were like don't watch this part um, my parents did that for me in The Godfather with the middle part where um, Apollonia yeah when Michael uh, has the wife in Italy I think and... yeah I think the Apollonia part too also <laughs> was like oh, why don't you go get something from the kitchen for a minute um, but yeah so meanwhile Sonny looked... <laughs> getting riddled with bullets I know <laughs> totally or fine you've, or yeah, even just when he beats up uh, the brother-in-law, yeah. uh, just all of that. Yeah, all the violence was totally fine. I was just doing a quick Google. I was trying to remember if that would have been the first R-rated movie. What was the first R-rated movie I saw? Um, and I wanted to fact check to make sure this was right. And mine's. I saw My Cousin Vinny when I was like pretty young, not long after it came out. So I was probably like nine or ten. Um, but that's another one, like Dylan, you were saying, it's only rated R because yeah. they, just, they just say the F word a bunch of times. And so my parents were pretty fine with that uh-huh. um, and so that's the first r-rated movie i remember seeing with my cousin Vinny that we rented yeah the Nick, first... what was your first <laughs> so the first one that i saw was extreme measures do you guys do you remember that jenna <laughs> jenna almost it sounds, spit it take. sounds like a jean-claude van damme movie or something though <laughs> it is not so it's like a very what even oh. i haven't seen it in a long time it has to have been incredibly boring medical thriller there's no sex or violence it's all just swearing and why is this okay yeah i've never and this was the first one hugh it was at a friend's birthday party when i was like 10 or something hugh grant is investigating um gene hackman who's who is doing experimental surgeries on homeless people that was the birthday party we went to when we were like 10 that was my first what did this first person grow up to be uh, <laughs> whose birthday it was? I don't know. I used to see him around town when we like there was a coffee shop we hung at. How we hung out at uh, downtown Akron that got torn down, and ever since it got torn down, I have not seen him. So I don't know. Uh, this, I, is this what this inspired has- your medical? <laughs> <laughs> exactly my <laughs> illegal experimentation. Oh my god! This movie is has a truly crazy poster. Um, I've I know. never heard of it. It's so strange looking. Yeah, extreme. Written by Michael Apted, the Tony Gilroy script. <laughs> extreme Measures does not sound at all like what right. you would get. Like you were saying, it sounds like a Van Damme movie, not. Yeah, or maybe a Clint Eastwood like revenge thriller or something. Yeah, not. Like... We're, we're going to Extreme Measures to try to cure. I believe it was like per- spinal based paralysis. That's, yes. <laughs> yep. Yeah, uh, and it's just these two doctors. That is. 
Huh. Man. I, I was going to say, maybe I'll watch this. I do not think I'm going to watch this, but I don't think that's you so need interesting. To. No, I think I'm good, but that's a, mm. that's a good one. Interesting. It's not, but it is interesting. It's <laughs> <laughs> just a good factoid for your first rated R movie. I'm trying to imagine going to someone's house for like a sleepover or a birthday party, and they're like, this is what we're watching. Oh, it was in the theaters. Mm. <laughs> Janet just did a second spin. I did. I know. That's just so bad. Uh, it, yeah, is, I mean, it is a 56% on Rotten Tomatoes, so not atrocious, okay. but not. There you that's go. what not Marie great. Antoinette has. It's not a true disaster. I should rewatch it and throw it up on my letterbox, but I'm not going to. I say I, sh- I, I, say I should, knowing short. that it'll never happen. <laughs> like it, It's not worth it for like the funny bit of having rewatched it no. and then logging it on letterbox and confusing people. Uh, oh, goodness. My, my first uh, R-rated movie was The Good and the Bad and the Ugly, if that oh. is technically R. Yeah, I don't even know if those movies are rated in the yeah. traditional sense. But My parents told me it was R, but then my dad said it was fine. And then I was going to a s- be babysat for a weekend from family friends. So I mm-hmm. must have been really young when I saw that. It, um, it says, the internet says that the whole Man With No Name trilogy is rated R. So there you go. So. And that is probably the most R of the three of them. Yeah. Yeah, I would think so. Anyway. Huh, yeah, okay, fine. All right, so um, what were, we talked about our sort of experiences coming into it. Uh, what were your overall impressions this time? Did it change at all for you, Dylan, how you <laughs> felt about it watching it when you were younger till now? Well, when I was younger, I was like, oh, such a masterpiece. Um, hmm. It is very good. Um, I think the more you watch movies, you understand which masterpieces speak more to you, though. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is just one that doesn't in almost any way. Um, I will not ding almost any of the quality in this movie because it is very well made. It just, there's... You can, you can appreciate it without yeah. necessarily thinking that you enjoy it, maybe, yeah, or yeah. would ever want to watch it again <laughs> if you give um, it the choice. We'll get into it. There is only one scene in... There's actually only two scenes in the movie that I actually really liked and thought were great scenes. <laughs> and there's a lot of scenes, so that was a little disappointing. Um, th- so this is something my brother and I have came up with over the years. Is we have an idea that there's an axis on which a movie can be emotionally taxing without impacting the enjoyment or the quality of the movie, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so to say something for like Grades of Fireflies, there's not necessarily a lot of like gore in Grades of the Fireflies, sure. but it is like extraordinarily emotionally taxing. Right. And to me, to the point where I lose a connection with the movie that I wish I had. Mm-hmm. Um, another side of that could be something like, I'm trying to think of like a bloody but silly movie. I can't think of one off the top of my head. But at that point, it just, it doesn't, there, there's a point to which where it goes a little too far. 
Um, for me, and for most of this movie, I would say Apocalypse Now was on the 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 wrong side of that axis for me. And I think it was interesting to watch this very close to Aguirre, because mm-hmm. Aguirre is perfectly on that axis and never goes over. And I think there's a couple scenes between movie these movies where they're like almost like cinematically story-wise and shot-wise very very similar and i find the way agire at least does it a lot more impactful without being too forceful i guess is the way to say it so that's that's what i have to say i'll i'm trying not to be too grumpy about it because the movie itself may be grumpy but it is a very good movie and now i'll turn it over to nick fulton who (laughs) Yeah, always th- knows to agree with me. <laughs> no, I, I, I <laughs> think this movie's fantastic. I think it is a masterpiece. Sure. Um, there's like, I don't know what it is. There's something that holds me back because on paper, this really does seem like it should be my favorite movie of all time. And it doesn't quite reach that. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean, it is uh, an incredible movie. It's kind of like how 2001, um, like I have nothing really bad to say about 2001, but it just doesn't quite hit me emotionally that it's going to be like on my top two i mean even though that's also i would say that as a masterpiece it's not like cracking my top 10 um and this is similar like it's incredible it looks great the sound of it it's intense and stressful and it's depraved at times and i love the brando stuff and um, Mm -hmm. But there's there's just something that keeps it from being like what on paper f- for me should be a favorite of mine because it's like sort of surreal but not over the top surreal. It still has like a discernible plot, um, and I I love these stories of person is like already starts off troubled and then just like falls off the total deep end of like being out of control so like i I think the godfather part two is is similar to that like where one you start off with michael being like a good guy and he becomes a bad guy and two he starts off as a bad guy and he just gets way worse that's kind of like willard's arc too where he already Mm -hmm. starts off punching mirrors (laughs) right (laughs) And, and then by the end well we'll get to the end um but I, I do kind of really go for that type of arc in a movie. Um, and I like it in this quite a bit. So, If you had to throw out a number, just give me a number of like guessing where it would end up in your all-time rankings. Um, I think it probably would crack my top 100, but it wouldn't be in like the top half, I don't think. Okay. Just curious. Thanks. Yeah, I'm kind of feeling about it the same way, especially like you were saying, Nick, about the the character arc for the Willard character. Because I, before I watched it the first time, didn't know that much about it. And so I think I assumed more that he started out as like a, you know, clean cut soldier who just wanted to do the right thing and then, you know, went through this traumatic experience. And I do like that he's already totally traumatized Mm -hmm. by the time, you know, it's frankly, it's why he gets this assignment right right? Right. because he's already done so many terrible things that they figure he's the man for the job to uh take on this whole kurtz 
journey. So it's it's what makes him a good fit. Yeah, and most of the side characters don't get a ton of development. Um, mm-hmm. But all th- really everybody else on the boat, if you want that story arc, you get that. Like we see, yeah. we see them all go through that journey that mm-hmm. they kind of. That's true. They kind of end where Willard starts, or maybe they end yeah. up a little worse than. <laughs> well, starts. yeah, some of them end up a couple, a little bit worse. <laughs> just, um, just but no, that's that's true. Mainly yeah, that's the people true. of color. Yeah. yeah. yeah that's, yep, that's, I have that uh, written in my notes. Yeah, I, I, that noticeable. Yeah. I noticed. That. Yeah, I didn't take a rewatch for that to to jump out at me. I don't. Um, I honestly don't know if that was a commentary on how vietnam war turned out to be a lot worse for minorities and people of color mm-hmm. um i'm gonna guess not yeah i don't i, I don't know I it don't could know. be i made a note about it um especially um i'm jumping around a little but there's the sequence lit towards like in the second half when they're getting close to kurtz um and they stop when they pick up the mail i think and there's like um all the guys that are on shore there and it's like a concentrated group of black soldiers and so i had that and they're the craziest yeah exactly and so i kind of had Mm. that thought and especially like this is the past week when we've been talking about the new spike lee movie that's coming out in just a few weeks about the five bloods which is specifically going to be about that exact topic about how Mm -hmm. the vietnam war was particularly hard um on those soldiers and so i did i noticed it but i I don't feel confident that I can say what Coppola was. Uh, yeah. What, if any point he was trying to make, or if it was just sort of part of portraying the war. So, all right. Well, might as well jump in at the beginning um, of the movie, and the se- the movie starts with I think what probably has to be one of the most famous opening sequences of a movie. I had seen this opening sequence before before I ever saw the movie. Um, just like seen it on youtube and on various other things on tv so i was familiar but it's just this very evocative impressionistic opening and i think and dylan you can correct me if i'm wrong but i feel like kind of from this sequence maybe you're either on board with the movie is doing or you're not um because immediately i was like this is awesome Um, and it's not the most subtle um, of you know portrayals or imagery but that's fine um, it has the sort of famous, um, like the blades of the ceiling fan and the helicopters. And so we see Willard is, he sort of goes from being like this malaise and sort of stuck in this hotel room. And then he's having, these, you know, images of fire and things um, until he finally gets to a point where he has a total freak out. He's doing some sort of very aggressive seeming tai chi sort of uh (laughs) movements in his room looking quite terrifying um martin sheen in this movie is just wild to me it's also very strange to go back to know martin sheen as like a you know older sort of very sedate kind of presence in movies and tv and then go back and watch this he's so Um, presidential you're right exactly um and then like nick mentioned there's the Part where he punches the mirror, which famously Martin Sheen, I guess, actually punched that mirror and split his hand open. And he was Dylan's uh, rolling his eyes so hard his whole head just went to the side. He was, I think they shot it on his birthday, and he mm-hmm. was quite loaded. Yes, that's what I read also. With what? Yeah. Booze. 
Just drunk. I think yeah. he was just like trashed. He just got. I'm surprised real drunk. that alcohol got to do that much. He just got totally. I thought drunk. it was more than that. <laughs> <laughs> well, they have enough. Um, there, yeah, there was so, other stuff going on. Uh, yeah, maybe not. Gotcha. I don't know about him specifically, but other people were doing other things uh, for yeah. sure. Yeah, but he got got uh, real messed up and filmed that and split his hand open. And so, and it's interesting because I love that scene and just like the look on his face and he's sitting there and his hands bleeding and it's kind of funny to think like, well, that probably hurt quite a bit. Um, but it goes, you know straight from this basically to the soldier guys have to come get him and get him cleaned up <laughs> wait i gotta go back <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I have a couple questions about this whole thing is it about his uh, shirtless various well, yes. <laughs> first of all what do you guys think of jim morrison and the doors what what what, what are your guys's opinions on their music i like the use of the doors in this movie <laughs> I actually what does that like mean, the, Nick? <laughs> I think he doesn't like the doors open. Yeah, I don't particularly like them in general. Yeah, neither do I. And I find it like this Sorry. sounds horrible, but I find it silly. Well, so here's it's just something so on the nose. Here, so um, I watched one of the special features on the um, that came with the iTunes edition of Apocalypse Now. Um, one of them was about the mu- making the music for the movie which um, seems like it was as miserable as making <laughs> the movie I'm sure. itself. I'm sure. Uh, because mostly because it seems like Coppola kept changing his mind about what he wanted. So he kept, he would have one person work on the music, then he would change his mind and bring somebody else in, and then they would take over, and the first person would get mad, and then he would change his mind again, and so they all hated each other. Mm-hmm. But apparently the original plan was to have the entire film scored with Doors music. Oh, the Doors music would play God throughout. And they didn't because they said it was just too on the nose. Um, and because, but when they talked to the actual soldiers who'd fought in Vietnam, they said, yeah, that is it. Like, that's all we listened to. That's what was, that was the soundtrack yeah, of the I've war. Heard. And so they, you know, it's, it was realistic, but they mm-hmm. took it out because it was just, even though it was realistic, like, it's one of those things where something can be super realistic, but it makes a movie seem fake because <laughs> that's just mm-hmm. not how <laughs> you would expect it to work. So, yeah, I like the door. I grew up listening to the doors a lot. Uh, my dad played the doors all the time. And one of my uncles in particular, who's even a little bit younger than my dad, was a big doors fan. And so grew up listening to that music. Um, I remember when the doors, uh, the movie, the doors came out with Val Kilmer playing Jim Morrison. Like that was a big deal. I remember, it was one of the first time I remember my parents getting a babysitter for me was so they could go <laughs> see that in the theater. <laughs> so like, it was just, is that, yeah, I mean, I is that an Oliver Stone movie too? Yeah, I think it is. Show favorite. <sighs> yeah, exactly. Um, I, so um, I don't sit around listening to Doors music, mm-hmm. but I do have kind of a fondness for like, it makes me think sure. of like my childhood and my family and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, oh, that okay. makes sense. But I, I agree that it was the right decision to use it sparingly, sparingly. at the beginning mm-hmm. and the end. Um, you know, but I, so I, I like it in the, in the opening sequence, even though it's a little cheesy. It's, I, I don't want to say it's cheesy. It just, it felt like a lot more, it, it it just felt on the nose. It took me out of the movie a little bit from the get-go. And so did Martin Sheen's ridiculous scene. <laughs> um, I know Nick is going to absolutely kill me for this. I will. But, yeah, the I mainly felt it was like Joaquin Phoenix is acting in The Joker. Oh, come on. Just because of the weird <laughs> body contortion stuff? 
Yeah, and I mean, if breaking anything... mirrors to make their bodily parts bleed and screaming and crying well, really in loudly. Sheen's defense, he did it first. <laughs> yeah, he so, did do it first, least... and he and he did it on accident. Yeah, mm, that's okay. Yeah. Um, it's just like I was like, okay. Well, I he's think crazy. one of the things that's interesting about it though is that's kind of the high point or low point, I guess you could say. Of that from him, like otherwise Willard as a character, he, I mean he he sort of lashes out a couple of times mm-hmm. and, and does crazy things, but he's otherwise pretty low key. Like that, yeah. I feel like that's you know sort of that sequence is a very contained like. It's a good representation yeah. of how of gone he is before right. we get into the jungle, and he's right. more in like his natural habitat. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and he he can just not go crazy because he's already in a crazy world. Right. I, I think that's a, a good way of thinking about it. You get this representation of like what's going on in his mind, <laughs> but then once he goes back into the jungle, like it's just, well, here I am and I'm doing my job. And But the thing is, it's like they had a really, really good part that emphasized just how crazy or how war obsessed he was, mm-hmm. which is putting the sound effects over the the, the, uh, the, the helicopter sound right. effects over the fan, which right. in this whole mass of things that, at least for, for me, were a little too on the nose and heavy hitting, that thing really worked for me. And I thought, like, that was a really smart use of just how fixated his mind is, at least on, it's not, it can't, it, he, he can't stay in this room. Mm-hmm. Right. It, like, it, he, he has to be connected to some part of the war. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like, I would have gotten the sense of how mad he was about war if they had just done the sound effect and moved on. See, for me, like the real threat of the movie, um, in addition to like the literal uh, threats of death and imprisonment, etc., um, mm-hmm. are him becoming Kurtz, and right. we need to see like a tangible threat of that. And I think from very early on, we see that. You know, they're talking in the next scene about how Kurtz has lost his mind and he's gone off the deep end and they can't control him. Well, what do we already know about the guy that they're sending in to try to take care of that problem? He's lost his mind. He can't be controlled when he sees other people the next day. They can barely wake him up. He's not fun. I actually really like the scene the next day Mm -hmm. where he is like just absolutely gone and they're having to like pick him up and it's funny because like one of the soldiers even mentions like we got another dead one here so it's yeah. like this is the thing they have to do regularly it's just right these soldiers are like burning themselves out like crazy yeah i i, I like that part a lot uh i would say that it's probably the best with risky business being the second best of a scene uh, of a guy <laughs> dancing around Dan- in his underwear i think that's fair <laughs> I cannot believe we're equating risky <laughs> business to apocalypse now in some That's, shape or form. The vibe's a little different, but you yeah. know the imagery's not that. They far both off. use like popular music. It's true. So, barely related question: When you guys see young Martin Sheen like this, does he look more like Emilio Estevez or Charlie Sheen to you? Emilio. Like, does that he looks like Emilio? It looks like Emilio, right? Yeah. Yeah, that was my... There's a couple times where, like, when he turns his head, you kind of get a Charlie Sheen, like, look. Um, but it to, it was almost distracted to me that he looked... At least at first, he got used to it. But, like, at first, I'm yeah. like, it's just Emilio Estevez running around. Mm-hmm. 
I'd have been Which curious be to see different. Emilio Estevez in the role. You know, <laughs> he could have done a good job. Huh? He didn't get a yeah, fair I chance. Think he, I think he's a good actor. Yeah, I, I do really too. like Emilio Estevez as an actor. Um, yeah. For some stupid reason, because my brain is dumb, I always mistake Martin Sheen for Michael Douglas. And it was I'm about fair. a third of the way through this movie. I was like, oh, this isn't Hank Pym. This is the dude from <laughs> West Wing. Oh, my God. Um, so you, you have or have not seen the American president. I can't remember. I have. Right. Um, and yeah. so that's that's just they are they are associated in my head for that reason. Oh, yeah, that's true. Michael Douglas plays never... the Sorkin president and Martin Sheen's his chief of staff. And then when they make the West Wing, Martin Sheen <laughs> becomes the president, the TV version, basically, of yeah. essentially the same character. So I, I've I think never thought about fair, it that way. Maybe yeah. that's something that's I just don't know. Um, <laughs> and the other thing I thought about with uh, Martin Sheen and his sons during the movie was uh, did he name his son after the communists? Charlie? No, I think Tr- Martin Sheen's real name is Carlos, yeah. right? Yeah. No. Carlos Charlie, Charlie Sheen's real name is Carlos. Martin's okay. is... Um, I, his I didn't too. know that, sorry. Oh, no, his, you're right. His name is something else. Now I'm... I'll find it. Looking it up. Ramon. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Charlie Sheen's real name is Carlos Estevez, yeah. yeah. Um, mm. One thing before we move on, but apparently um, the very opening shot, like just the image of the trees was found like in a trash can oh. like when he was uh, cutting the movie together they had uh, a lot of footage supposedly a million or a million and a half depending on mm-hmm. who you believe feet of footage and mm-hmm. that shot of the trees was just kind of like at the end of one of the rails that they had pitched and Coppola oh, was wow. just going through the trash for some reason and came across that and he's like oh I like how this looks yeah, I mean, it looks great, yeah. so it I don't does. Him. Uh, Martin Sheen's uh, real name is Ramon Estevez, by the way, so mm. we've closed it. I didn't know that. Yeah, Jeez. yeah. I know, it's, it is, well, it's always interesting to me when, like, one, when a famous person like that, like, one son kept, like, the, mm-hmm. the family name, and the other son just took the dad's stage name, <laughs> and so I was like, oh, okay. I think we can read into it a little bit, like if we want. Yeah, to I was going to say something, but I was like, eh, uh, "Yeah, if you want to do some psychoanalysis on uh, Charlie Sheen, there, that probably <laughs> speaks to some stuff." All right. So, anyway, yes, when he gets dragged out, he gets um, came and come and picked up and taken to a meeting with some um, sort of high-ranking officer folks who are giving him his assignment, which a is very to fine looking. Kurtz. With an excellent, excellent-looking Harrison Ford rocking some excellent glasses. Ooh, great glasses. Um, great glasses. Should bring those glasses back. Um, kind of looks like Nick's glasses right now, honestly. No, these are yeah. totally clear. His are, I think, thin wire-rimmed. They have, like, a wire rim. Yeah. Yeah, on his. It could be mm-hmm. in, like, My bad. They're, like, they're, they're, I don't know. Really, he pulls them off, though. He makes it oh, work. Oh, yeah. Um, to be sure. And so they, they explain to him, basically, what's happening with Kurtz. Um... They play a clip of, you know, Kurtz's voice. So you get that first hearing of Marlon Brando um, in the movie, show a picture of a young Kurtz, which is a speaking of a fine looking younger mm-hmm. Marlon Brando also in his good old days. Um, and is basically they tell him to go take him out uh, to this is the terminate with extreme prejudice <laughs> sequence. Dad um, uses that line all the time. Yeah, I didn't know. It was, I've obviously heard it a million times and didn't realize it was a reference to mm. this. <laughs> I so, think this uh, is probably one of my favorite scenes in the movie. I love 
when they're inquiring about his past and they bring up some assassination that he did. Mm-hmm. And he's like, yeah. Can't talk he's like, yeah. I don't know if I can talk about this. If it did happen. Right. If it did happen, I wouldn't be at liberty or lawfully. If it was true. <laughs> you're like, okay. Yeah, I, I like that too. No, I, I like the sort of like the game they have to play about yeah. it where they it's know great. what he's done and it's why they brought him in, but he, you know, is acknowledging it without really being able to acknowledge it. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems very like representative of how I assume conversations like that probably take place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What I think is interesting scene. about the whole mission itself is that they don't really have too much of a leg to stand on <laughs> when, yeah. it, when it comes to why they want to kill this guy. Um, right. Basically, their justification is he had people extrajudiciously assassinated mm-hmm. um, because they he believed in what seems like correctly that they were actually, they, they were um, people who were supposedly uh, Vietnamese on the American side, mm-hmm. um, but he believed that they were actually working with the North Vietnamese army. Right. Um, and later we learn a little bit more and it seems like that is probably true. Yeah. Uh, so their reason for assassinating him is basically he did those and he did those um, without permission and without a trial. Right. And he has now amassed um, a cult like following. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, which I find it interesting because so many other people in this movie like kill Without trial. Exactly. Well, so without prejudice. Yeah. But Liter- the thing is... Literally is what he... they're sending Willard <laughs> right. on yeah. is to but kill this person. Yeah. Well, it's okay when they order it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, but the thing is, it's the fact that Kurtz himself said, I'm killing these people for a reason. And all the other killings in the movie are just without a reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the fact that this person gave a reason, they're like, oh, he's got to go. Right, yeah. Which again, sort of... it's another one of these parts of these scenes where it could it could so easily be just really basic expository scenes, but is adding a lot of like threads that make this movie a lot more dimensional than it probably would have been mm-hmm. if it was directed by Oliver Stone. <laughs> yeah, like to me, the one of the main things about this movie is just the hypocrisy of mm-hmm. these systems, and that's yeah. the biggest one. They they want to kill a guy for killing people. <laughs> exactly when that's what everyone else is doing and then yeah it's it's yeah he he killed he assassinated people so we're going to assassinate him mm-hmm. and that's just sort of accepted as what's going to happen mm. um real quick i want to ask what did you guys think of martin sheen's voiceover throughout the movie we haven't mentioned that yet i love it i think it's good yeah oh, that's I, good. I like it yeah that's very good <laughs> do you not like it did you did it bug you no <laughs> what was your problem with it um, it, I don't know. It felt like it was narrated in the tone of Harrison Ford's Blade Runner. And okay. we already had such good expository threads mm-hmm. that I didn't need extra expository inner dialogue, I think. Mm-hmm. Especially because the visuals are so good. I felt like they told enough of the story without him having to be like... Uh, I'm trying, I have some quotes of his, like, they wanted a mission for my sins and they gave me one. Or, mm-hmm. there's a conflict of the human heart in this place. 
I it's mean, like, yeah, I know there's a conflict. There's fucking killing people out here. Like a little poetic. I, I wrote down it. It comes from a scene that's going to come up shortly. But um, when he's talking about the like cal- cavalry guys and he says what they were mopping up now hadn't even happened yet an hour ago. Like it's it's just it's very yeah. it's florid, but in a way that worked for me. I'm glad it worked for you guys. It's just yeah, so, I, it I, felt weird for me. I like it. It gives it. Um, I, I haven't read Heart of Darkness, but it does give it sort of a novelistic feel. I don't know if that mm. was mm. the intent or not, but it also feels a lot like um, uh, Taxi Driver with with that narration. And what both of these movies I think That's have in true. common is that, um, as far as I can think of, we spend the entire movie with Willard. I don't think we ever go away from him, do we? No, I think it's entirely his point of view. Whereas even like Taxi Driver is, you know, ninety five, ninety seven percent Travis Bickle. But even like that has a couple tiny scenes where you travel away to um, like Harvey Keitel and mm-hmm. uh, Iris, and then the the Sybil Shepherd character alone for a little bit. So it's it to me, it just helps you get totally into this character's head so that you see everything that's making him tick and you also know that he's aware of some of these hypocrisies like he's mentioning in the narration that he's already killed people he says he's killed at least six people but now that it's an american it's different even though it shouldn't be it's different to him Mm -hmm. yeah well so two things one um, the narration was written by this other guy who was a, as opposed to it being by Milius and Coppola, they brought in like a war correspondent to write the narration. So I think that's why it has that. It feels, it does feel different than the rest of the dialogue and, and the rest of the movie in tone. Um, and apparently, uh, where did you go, sir? Whose was name it I was Joe? just looking at. <laughs> it's, it's, it's this guy. Where did your name go? Michael Hare. Um, was an American writer and war correspondent. Um, he did the narration for Apocalypse Now and then went on to write the screenplay for Full Metal Jacket. So he, you know, has a lot of things to say about <laughs> war and what it does yeah. to people. Um, and then you just briefly mentioned Harvey Keitel, which makes now a good time to bring up the somewhat, I think, well-known story that Harvey Keitel was cast mm-hmm. as Willard and was actually like started in production and they said he was not a good, the right fit for the role and fired him and sent him home and had to bring Martin Sheen over and get him going. So is what there are, any footage of him? I don't think seen. so. I don't think it's like back to the future where there's actually footage of the mm. original star, but mm. I would be fascinated to see what that looked like. I can kind yeah. of imagine it. It just would have been different. Yeah. I think it was the right choice actually. I think so too. Um, yeah. At least yeah. how at least how I would picture it. I don't like when people say like, "Oh, that would be a wrong choice" because yeah, actors actually, can do different it. things. But at least it, how I'd picture in my head, yeah, I think Martin Sheen was a little better. In, uh, energy, I feel like would have been weird. Something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it would have been a, a <laughs> yeah. different energy, like for sure. So I, I do think that's the right choice. Um, The reason I said the name Joe is actually that I I thought you were going to mention that apparently um, Martin Sheen's brother Joe was his stand-in for a little bit while he was sick, and he actually did some of the voiceover. I'm not sure if it's any of the voiceover that's in the film or not, but he actually did voiceover for 
for uh, so Martin while he was I recovering. I did not get a chance to watch Hearts of Darkness, even though I really, really meant to. Um, Nick, you did, right? The, yes. The documentary. Um, yeah, so I don't know if there's whenever if there's anything to bring up other than just they were miserable all the time. That's pretty but, much it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> not a happy, uh, not a happy few years for Frankie. Anybody? Yeah. For Frankie Coppola. Yeah, Coppola has has that line about like we, like we didn't make a movie about a war. We went to war or something yeah. along those lines. It is Viet. <laughs> this isn't a movie about Vietnam. It is Vietnam. Vietnam. It is Vietnam. So Dylan is literally pulling his hair out of his mm-hmm. head. Um, I will say I, you know, one of my least favorite movies of all time is The Revenant. I like get mad <laughs> thinking about the existence of The Revenant is how much I can't stand it. And a lot of it is because of the narrative that like, you you know, it, it's great because it was so miserable and they suffered and every it was awful. And that's what filmmaking is. So like, I don't think inherently that there no. is anything. Honestly, you know, I have a bit of a headache. <laughs> right. So <laughs> that's why I was kind of squishing my face <laughs> yeah, more. Like, but, I, cause I do, I, but I do worry about that because I, um, it's kind of like they talk about on the Big Picture podcast, Dylan, with uh, like that concept of athletic filmmaking. Yeah. Sometimes like with 1917 and it's like, which I like 1917. Oh, yeah, 1917. Yeah, I like 1917 fine. Uh, well, I don't love Birdman, but I like Birdman okay. Um, but, uh, you know. <laughs> I, I, that was ma- I said that mainly to provoke Nick. <laughs> you guys saw the provocation. It worked. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, I I like Birdman fine um, and I like 1917 but I don't think there's anything like I don't think the fact that something was hard to make yeah. is inherently something to be celebrated um, but I do it's find just it, whatever the final product is mm-hmm. right exactly but I do find it fascinating in this case because I think the final product is such a masterpiece that it's it's definitely know. the best of the ones we just mentioned <laughs> yes okay good I think we can all agree on that at least yes, 100% <laughs> for sure so okay um We've been recording for 40 minutes and have not said the name Robert Duvall yet. So let's but talk about But we are going to talk about We're Robert Duvall now. Yes, we are. Because, um, so, you know, very shortly after, um, he gets this assignment and basically, um, before he can get to Robert Duvall, gets hooked up with his boat crew guys <laughs> who are going to be taking him up river and um, in country and on this mission that he's going on. And it is, there's the chief, Phillips, who's the guy in charge of the boat. There's Lance, who's the surfer, right? He's the mm-hmm. surfer one. Um, Chef, who's the sort of weird guy with the beard. <laughs> and then Mr. He's the Clean. modern hipster. That's right. how I would find him in my notes. And then Mr. Clean, which is what they call uh, Lawrence Fishburne's Larry guy Fishburne. character. Larry, uh, at this time, still Larry Fishburne. Um, still, still definitely a teenager throughout the making mm-hmm. of this movie the character himself is supposed to be 17 uh, which larry fishburne was when they finished, finished making the movie but was 14 when they cast him and they thought well he does look young um and <laughs> sure enough he was um and so this is yeah his his crew and it starts off you know not so bad like i actually love this sequence when they're first all on the boat and they're having a good yeah, time that was dope. Satisfaction comes on the radio and they're like water skiing, dancing. They're water skiing. Like this looks great. Like (laughs) what's war? It's not so bad. It's like a nice tropical vacation. Um, Then oh no, (laughs) well things do go wrong um, extremely quickly. Um, I do like that um, when the radio comes on. You know the guy does say good morning Vietnam as a actual real you know armed forces radio network intro and then. 
puts on satisfaction and they have a nice little dance party. It's a nice introduction for these characters. We kind of get to see how they're making the best of it, you know, with their circumstances before things get miserable for everybody pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Do you guys like the guys in the boat? Yeah, I love this sequence cool? for the same reason. It's, it's just yeah. a, like when you get to where they end up, you know, an hour or so yeah. from now in the movie, it's mm-hmm. nice to go back and think, well, look at how happy they used to be. Right. Yeah. Well, it's kind of, like you said, they don't, there's not an opportunity for like big character arcs for these characters. Like so much, like, you know, we don't spend enough time with like their inner but thoughts or not? anything, but we, well, cause that's not the story, <laughs> okay. but, um, but no, but we do, we, we get enough to see what their, their journey is in the mm-hmm. time we do get to spend with them. So, yeah, like that. <laughs> you wanted more? You, you wish the movie was about yeah. these guys, basically? Well, I, I don't wish it was about anyone in particular. I just wish I had a character that I latched onto or cared about in some way. Because I really didn't care about anyone. Really? I, I feel like, for me, the most of these guys, but, like, the Mr. Clean, the Larry Fishburne character in particular, I think is just yeah, so Until he murders someone and... for running at a... Well, you know, war is hell, man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it just people just panics. Yeah, you can still feel for a character even if they do shitty things. Right. I, and I, I, I felt for him when he died. It was just right. like, and it's kind of, it's kind of sad to think if he hadn't died, like, what would have his life been like after that? Like, what a traumatizing yeah. experience, you know, mm-hmm. just ruining everybody's lives, basically. Um, the only one I felt like had any genuine, uh, like story to their character at least like i it's not like i didn't care for anyone it's just anyone that like had a backstory or an arc or something that mattered for me the only one i felt that way before was chef Mm -hmm. um i didn't feel that about really anyone else i think chef has Um, the greatest moment of any of them uh which we'll we'll get into a little bit later but no. We still need to talk about Robert Duvall. Okay, <laughs> yes. so they need to um, to sort of get on their way, hook up with these um, this helicopter cavalry, and they talk about in the voiceover that basically this was like, you know, an old army cavalry division that just traded in their horses for helicopters. And it's, you know, it's great when it first um, introduces them, like right away, um, you know, tons of activities happening. It's like chaos on the beach. They're coming on land. This is where Francis Ford Coppola has his cameo mm-hmm. as a television news director <laughs> who's like, you know, Martin Sheen's like staring at him and he's telling him, don't look, you know, don't look at me. This is Just television. Keep going. Look at me. Just keep going. Just you're in war. It's like, okay. Um, I thought that was a fun cameo. I liked mm-hmm. that moment. Especially because I didn't know that he had a cameo until I was actually watching it. Um, I keep meaning to keep track of how many of these movies the directors have cameos in because these guys love to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, so very quickly we get introduced to Kilgore, who is the Robert Duvall character. (laughs) Um, And who boy, he is a real character. Who boy indeed. Who boy indeed. Um, I mean, I find him like captivating though. It's, I I Mm -hmm. do think it's a truly, truly great performance. Um, he was nominated for supporting actor um, for this performance. And it's another example, I think, of a really good, like a truly supporting performance. He comes in, he's awesome, and then they yeah. move on from him. We don't like come back to him later or anything. Um, 
but he's got his old school like, cavalry hat, like he's actually Custer or something. Yeah. Um, and he cares about nothing in life so much as surfing. That's that's all he <laughs> wants to do or talk about is surfing, basically. <laughs> um, and he's reluctant to sort of help. Uh, Martin Sheen and his crew because he hasn't heard about this mission. He hasn't got any orders. And so... It'll get in the way of surfing. Right, exactly. So Martin Sheen basically, you know, has to say, well, it's, you know, you wouldn't have heard about it. It's confidential. And then essentially Kilgore ends up motivated to get them where they need to go because there's this beach. Six foot waves. Surfing with six foot waves. Um, And that beach deserves to be liberated uh, because, as he tells the other soldiers, Charlie don't surf. And so he's got to go liberate the beach so that he can surf on it. He also becomes very excited when he meets Lance, who Mm -hmm. he finds out is a, like, really good surfer or semi-professional or something like that. I can't remember exactly what his Mm. surfing-related background was. But he's a Southern California guy, and Kilgore's all excited. And now he wants to go fight so he can get them to that beach <laughs> which i don't know I, I saw those waves i guess they're pretty good waves but they also just might be desperate considering <laughs> their circumstances yeah i'm not a surfing expert but they didn't seem right. quite that impressive but i guess they don't have right a lot of options so that's kind of what i was thinking too i'm also i've never surfed i would not try it would be a disaster yeah i would die. Um, but i have watched people surf in california and hawaii and it's like that's not that great. Um, but yeah, so I liked, you know, this introduction of this character. And I, it's one of those things where he's, you know, he's kind of a detestable guy. But I just loved watching him on screen. I love Robert Duvall in general. He's Robert my Duvall favorite. is the best. He's my favorite part of The Godfather. He's my favorite yep. character in that movie. Um, and he's so good in this. And I can mm. see why Coppola wanted to have him do this. It's great. So you were pro, Dylan. You this this like this, this was an enjoyable moment of the movie for me in general. I thought the attack was horrible, and that was one of the first main moments where, if I'm talking about my the the threshold at least for where I put the threshold at, mm-hmm. like yeah, no the yeah, yeah the like I I I just I don't know how much the movie is genuinely cognizant of how terrible the americans were at this part i think it absolutely is i think it is too okay i mean you can't i'm not it didn't feel right for me at least in general um and that could just be me it probably is just me i'm it just it felt wrong and i didn't enjoy the attack itself but whenever we got away from the attack and we got to just Robert Duvall being Robert Duvall. I think he, he his character was best when he was tangential to the action mm-hmm. and just getting to mouth off about horrible stuff. I mean, there's a reason why, aside from the lines being very catchy and well-known, that mm-hmm. his lines with Charlie Don't Surf and then the whole smell of napalm in the morning, which is one of those lines that, you know, is that a lot longer? It, you know, it has the entire bit where, you know, he starts yelling at them, you smell that. That and then smell. He loves the sm- right, that smell. And I love the smell of napalm in the morning. And then he goes on and Nothing on to describe like it. That. And then it smells like victory. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I love I lo- it, it. Again, it feels kind of like a goofy thing to say in 2020 to be like, you know what's really good? When he says, I love the smell of napalm in the morning, <laughs> that's a good scene. Um, but it is. It is a good scene. 
Um, I felt like he was the Aguirre of this movie. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think if the movie were about him, it would be Aguirre. Basically basically. be Aguirre. Um, And so that's why I enjoyed it more. It was maybe a more charismatic character than Mm -hmm. Willard. Um, Sure. Not saying that Willard's bad. That's not. No, but he's true, not. But... He's not a Gire and he's not Kilgore. He's he's much more. Yeah. You know, purposefully so, kind of along for the ride, just trying to get people to take him where he needs to go. He's not leading like that. Uh-huh. Um, one of my favorite uh, Kilgore lines, though, which I didn't remember about or have ever heard quoted, but is when the flare goes into the um, helicopter. Mm-hmm. And he said, "Unass that shit." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is so good. Um Yeah, my favorite line of his, um and I, I just wanna say I absolutely love this scene, like the, the attack scene. Mm-hmm. Uh because it is just incredibly brutal. It's one of the most brutal scenes I've I've ever witnessed. It's horrible. In a war movie. Yeah, it's, it's, tough. it's it's awful. Um, mm-hmm. but it's supposed to be like, that's what it's going for. Yeah. And, and they, he juxtaposes it really well with like kind of the absurdity of using Wagner. Right. Yeah. So yeah, we hadn't even talked about I that. I hate that Wagner he, so much. That he actually, well, he was a bad dude. Yeah. <laughs> I know, but just generally Wagner music sure. makes me I mean, actively annoyed. Well, it's, it's, it's hard to, for me to imagine what I would have thought seeing this, like if I hadn't known about mm-hmm. it, because it's so famous now, right? Like mm-hmm. it's yeah. so it's so well known. You can't. I I hear right of the Valkyries, and I associate it with like the helicopters mm-hmm. more than anything else. So it's hard to erase that and imagine how I would feel otherwise. Instead, I'm just like, oh yeah, no, this is this is when right of the Valkyries plays. Of course <laughs> it does. Um, but I have to say, I don't think I really probably knew before watching the movie that it's not just like the score. It's that literally there are. You know, there are yeah, they're players they're in these helicopters blaring it. It's, it's like, it's oh, the, okay. It's the guy in Mad Max with uh, <sighs> it's the Doof Warrior with the guitar on fire. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, but my yeah. my oh. favorite my favorite um, Kilgore line, which is is Kilgore named that? Is it a reference to Kilgore Trout, the Vonnegut? I character? was wondering that. I wondered that too. I, I couldn't I find that anywhere, know. but it, it yeah feels Kilgore like Kilgore Trout's not like that though. Isn't he different in a few in different books though? I know he was a writer, but wasn't he at least a soldier? Either he was way. a soldier in Slaughterhouse Five, and he is a, I think, a writer in um, Breakfast of Champions, yeah. if I remember correctly. Um, either way, I think the the one of the best lines that um, it's a great line, but also it sums up kind of who this guy is is uh, when he says they find a. North Vietnamese soldier who's been mm. like destroyed, uh, and he says, "Any man brave enough to fight with his guts strapped on him can drink from my canteen any day." So he's I, he's not. I like that scene a lot too. Yeah, I rewatched that part this morning and was like, "Oh, like because it's not it's not going where you. Th- I don't know where mm-hmm. I thought it was going to go, but it, it to me it doesn't go like I was expecting it to." He's not. It added, it added a small dimension to his yeah. character that I thought uh-huh. was interesting. And then I think it added another dimension when some, I forget what someone mentions to him, something about, I think it, it might have been like, there's some good waves going and he just drops the canteen and just like books it out. He just, <laughs> he just completely forgets about him. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, oh, this character is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Like he seems to be more um, 
about like the valor of it all than than mm-hmm. the actual like ideals of of the war. Oh. But I don't then, know how much valor he has though. Well. But I mean, he res- he respects this guy who's yeah like his glory enemy. in battle. Yeah. That he's kind like of, the only yeah. person that besides Kurtz that even respects the enemy though. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that because it's it's about yeah, it, it's more of sort of a soldier's mentality that it's sort of yeah absolutely yeah like he 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 doesn't really care about like why we're warring um he he cares about the surf and then uh beyond beyond (laughs) that just like the like the the valor and the heroics of it all rather than you know who's who's actually winning the political battle and all that other like kind of meaningless crap which you know arguably uh you could say was one of the problems with the vietnam war yes (laughs) real hot take Mm -hmm. that maybe no one knew or cared about what they were fighting for and they were just fighting for fighting's sake yeah and then i guess to to dylan's question of how much are the filmmakers even aware Mm -hmm. of the absurdity of all this and the cruelty of all this um after that scene willard even says like if I'm going to kill Kurtz, like, what about this guy? How's this? Right. Like, how's this guy yeah. any different? Okay, I, I probably didn't ex- describe this correctly. It's just, it's filmed in such a way that it's almost too entertaining. If I mean, that makes sense. We're we're circling back around to the idea that there's no, no such, such thing as an anti-war yeah. movie, right? Because yeah, it's yeah. entertaining. And that's what it, yeah. That it, in um. Yeah, it, it it just felt it felt like a little bit of an imbalance to me. It, mm-hmm. I, I, I understand that Copeland knew that the yeah. Vietnam War was probably not a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's just kind of more of what I meant. Um, okay. I, th- I, th- no, I think, that's think one of the most impactful shots of the movie, though, is just before the attack happens. There's these kids walking into a school mm-hmm. and they have to start sheltering them away. Yeah. And it it's because this dude has a stupid mission to go kill someone right and this other dude wants to surf right i think i think they do a good job of because later on too sort of after the initial attack when they're actually like coming in um you know there's a lot of shots sort of throughout in the background of scenes of them you know rounding up families and there's kids and there's all these helpless people and even it while they're having the whole conversation about like napalm in the morning and things like that like you can see you know behind them you see all the like the villagers just it's all oh. there you know it's it's tough yeah uh, and i guess this comes back to the axis that i'm talking about but i find it more impactful that they can show a group of children having to be sheltered away as these crazy people come to kill them mm-hmm. rather than a bunch of people screaming yeah it's like the same sort of message but at least it impacts me more when it's not yelling it Right. Like, the, there's not me. too much no, actually no. horrible violence or thing. Although there is, we do see like at least one American soldier who's had his leg blown off at oh, one that point. Was, that's that's one of to me. That's sort of one of the most because I mm-hmm. as much as I like I like action movies, I like war movies, but I don't like gore and I don't like <laughs> looking directly <laughs> at like I have a real low tolerance for that so that's a very much like putting my hand up like <laughs> sort of just like a half the screen until they uh-huh. are not zooming in on that anymore because yeah not a not sure. my favorite but um so I'm basically with you that yeah I would rather see the implication of how horrible it is than mm-hmm. the like it'll actual... affect me deeper yeah. I guess is the better way to put it but that I will admit and this is something because my brother who he and I kind of came up with this idea. I'm sure not originally, but just on our own. Um, he has a very, he has a different 
um, level of where he can handle it, mm-hmm. um, where it to him starts to lose a bit of focus. And like I've had to understand over the years, like that's where his is. I have a different spot, and like I know this is subjective. All I'm, criticism is subjective. Does, does it go like your brother? Here, you here. No, my brother's Nick- lower than oh, me. Oh, he's lower. Okay, I was gonna say he's more of like a Nick level, where it's like just bring the pain, basically. Oh, it's a hoot. Uh, sorry, the oh, other yeah. way around. Oh yeah, he has. <laughs> he's a high throat. Oh, he has a lower for... tolerance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, a lower throat. Yeah, gotcha. he, yeah, he like there's movies like I want to show him like, for, for example, The Ascent recently that I watched, another war anti-war movie. Mm-hmm. Um, that film would probably be rated PG, and I feel like it had more scenes of like children having to be sheltered like yeah. that's level of things children and peril. so it really worked for me yeah it that would be too far even for him he would oh. not want to gotcha um, yeah so yeah no it's yeah. really true i mean that is one of the things about just watching movies with people in general mm-hmm. that you have to sure. it's always really tough like back in the olden times when we were allowed to have people over to our houses to watch movies oh so I know. nice sorry yeah i would always you know, have people over for whatever holiday season, you know, like 4th of July and have like fun, you know, watch like Top Gun or something, you know, goofy American movie. Um, Or, you know, during Halloween, I would always have people over to watch movies for Halloween. But Mm. my tolerance level, like, you know, I'm not putting on some gross slasher. I'm not going to watch like Saw or something. Mm. Like I, we, I did watch one year. My friends insisted on what a couple of them insisted on watching like The Conjuring too scary for me. Did not, uh, <laughs> did not care for that experience. <laughs> it was very scary, uh-huh. um, you know. But like last year, I watched A Quiet Place. Or we, mm. we all watched A Quiet Place, um, which I don't know was fine. I thought it was kind of boring. But one of my friends <laughs> found it so upsetting that like she had to go sit on my balcony and was just like, mm. I, t- I, I'm gonna be out there like on my phone. I don't want to watch this. And I was like, Oh, mm-hmm. okay. Like I don't think of this as like a really scary movie. I thought it'd be kind of fun. Mm-hmm. But you know. One of the things, she has kids, and so because it gotcha. starts immediately with kids in peril, that was just a deal breaker. And so it is, it's hard, like, especially yeah. if you are it's trying that to. That access is different. Yeah, for, for people on where it went. So you're like, I can't get past it. This isn't enjoyable. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's a, it's a tough balance for sure. So, But this one for me hit the more of the sweet spot, I think, because... For better or worse, I do think it's really entertaining. Mm. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's like you said, issues with that. But that's sort of what kept me going uh, sure. through it. Uh, one other quote, speaking of uh, Kilgore, before we leave him behind, like the movie does, um, <laughs> relevant to what we were talking about, I'd forgotten I wrote down that after his whole, um, you know, napalm in the morning scene, at one point he makes the comment that just, you know, someday this war is going to end. And it's like, you know, there's this realization of like we're, we're here because this is what we got to do like it's mm-hmm. not you know this is the circumstance that you know i think for him it's like well i might as well surf like i'm here and so this is what i'm doing like mm-hmm. it's just an interesting mindset we don't get the sense it's not like he's some evil person who you know hates all the vietnamese mm-hmm. he just is a soldier doing his soldier stuff mm-hmm. um, which is interesting um, but so then uh, he's he's trying to get everyone to go surf. He wants Lance to go surf. And this is a, the point where Willard and his group, like, got to keep moving on. They've got to where they yeah. need to go. They can't just keep hanging out with this guy as fun as he is. Um, and so now we go back on our boat up the river. And so the rest of the movie basically is them journeying up the river with a couple of 
you know, they stop a few times along the way for various reasons, and every stop is worse than the last <laughs> in terms of the consequences for them, Yeah, <laughs> pretty I th- much. I think the very first stop is one of my favorite scenes in the movie, and this is what I was talking oh, about. Oh, okay, my good. Favorite, yeah. My favorite chef moment is when he, <sighs> he just yeah. wants to find mangoes. Buddy. And... Never get out of the boat. Never get out of the boat. <laughs> no. Yeah. I <laughs> messaged you guys like, I think I have a favorite scene in this movie, and I'm not sure if you guys will know what it is. And yeah, it was it's this, this one. scene. Because um, I think it had a, a group of good things. One, it, it gave some sort of at least human baseline to a character. Mm. Mm-hmm. He wants mangoes. We got some backstory of why he wanted the mangoes. He's a chef. Mm-hmm. He liked cooking. Food is very important to him. So, finding that mango is very important to him. There's a connection where Willard is listening to him, and then Willard suddenly hears something. And at that point, Chef also, like, almost immediately stops talking and starts listening as well. And it's the, it felt like there was a really good moment of soldier's instinct between this connection between those two. And then a tiger comes out, which is totally <laughs> not what I expected. I did oh. not remember this scene at all from the first time I watched it. Um, and they ru- they they book it right back to the oh, boat. God. Yeah. And Chef goes crazy. And I find it so funny that Chef goes crazy at this part and not like anything else in this movie. I mean, but that messed you to- up, man. That tiger yeah. Oh, yeah. You. But, like, it's one of those things. Like, is it more dangerous than a bunch of people shooting at you? No. But it's one of those things where, I mean, we're already in, like, dude movie zone with apocalypse now but if i will bring a dark knight quote into this it's like where the joker is kind of describing where it's it's probably one of my favorite quotes in the movie where he says like if a gangbanger gets shot or a truckload of soldiers gets blown up like no one cares yeah because like that's what's supposed to happen soldiers Mm -hmm. are supposed to die by getting shot at and gangbangers are supposed to be shot at but if i want to kill a mayor then everyone loses their minds it's like the tiger was not expected. That's right. not yeah. in the playbook. If, if a guy had jumped out waving a gun at them, like that would They'd have, have been shot bad, him and been like, but they, oh, that's no, supposed got, to happen. Right. That's what they mm-hmm. were on the lookout for, whereas this is so unexpected. And yeah, I had no idea. It scared the crap out of me when I was watching it. That scene is just so suspensefully shot. Mm-hmm. Yes. And what happens, what it culminates in is something that's terrifying. And you know, it, sh- it should be, it's either going to be nothing or it's going to be something terrifying. But it's terrifying in a way that you hadn't even considered being an option. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. That it just, it, it breaks him. And I think he says, other than never get out of the boat, he says something to the effect of, like, we shouldn't be here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it sort of makes I him wrote realize. down so many right. quotes of his hysteria speech. Another right. one was, I didn't get out of the eighth grade for this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which I felt maybe a little bit too on the nose, but it was interesting, like, the yeah. American system is failing it's citizens almost yeah. like the educational system right. is trying to help people reach another level and then they just get drafted into this pointless war. And then my favorite line was just, I just want to cook. Like, yeah. this isn't what these people should be doing. No. Yeah, that's, so th- that's th- a great line. Yeah. And so just this backstory, heart connection, mm-hmm. setting, filming, like, th- this is what, like, I'd want a war movie to be feeling more like if mm-hmm. I was mm-hmm. making or watching a war movie. It's the part that. I enjoyed and impacted me the most. Yeah. And I think his sense. reaction and his desire, like his desire is like, he doesn't want to be here. He just wants to be home right. cooking. He wants to mm-hmm. be there cooking. He wants to do the thing that he likes right. doing. Um, that's such a good contrast to Willard, who is just 
not. He's got nothing. He's mm-hmm. not like that at all. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it helps show like Chef is most people. It's he's like the Vietnam vets that we know, mm-hmm. and Willard yeah. is not that. He's right. he's he, gone. He's yeah. dist- He's a fucked up person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think it was good by having them go together and contrasting Absolutely. how they were reacting to this. Definitely. Thing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that and was that, a great scene. And that scene, it, like I said, it's so suspenseful and it's so beautifully shot too, because it's all mm-hmm. blue and it's you know in like, it's the jungle so hard and everything. to film the night. Yeah. Right, and so many times it feels like post tinted blue. Mm-hmm. And this, and there's very few movies I feel like actually feel like there's sh- it's real nighttime. Right, and it's not just like they filmed it with Day regular night, lighting and then filters, had to like yeah. tint it. Right. Um, in post or something. I no, just... I think this movie does a very good job. Like it, it should, it shouldn't be a big deal, but it, it kind of is the way that the time moves from day to night to day again, mm-hmm. and it, you really feel it. Like you really yeah. feel the days passing by and the different dangers that exist for them mm-hmm. at day versus night and everything. So yeah, anyway. I totally agree. So yeah, that's that is a good scene. I like that a lot. Um, they make it back on the boat. Uh, they keep going, <laughs> and then the next stop, I believe, is when we get to our everyone's favorite sequence with the Playboy bunnies. <laughs> I will say, though, before they even get there, speaking of things that I think are like beautifully shot, when they first come upon the the place wherever it, it looks like a carnival like when they're coming up the water and there's all these lights yeah and, it's like it's like monte carlo right, exactly it looks like yeah like a riverside casino or something and um lawrence fishburne mr clean has a line where he says like it's it's just basically something effective like this is not what you'd expect to see in a place like this or like I and i mean it's basically he's just saying like yeah that i also did not expect to see this <laughs> you guys coming up here um, but I thought it looked great. Um, and then they stop and they go in. And this appears to be some sort of like warehouse outpost mm-hmm. thing. Um, you know, I it's was, gone a bit crazy. Right. When I was rewatching it again this morning, because I, when I watched it the first time, I realized, oh, I didn't really understand sort of why a lot of things were happening. But I don't – sometimes that's me. I don't think that was me this time. I think, you know, they just – it doesn't really matter, like – why exactly these guys are here or what the military infrastructure is behind it. It's some sort of big warehouse outpost. It's totally crazy. They have like motorcycles and all these kinds of different things there. Um, And then there's a guy who's handing out supplies who is, uh, you know, just taking money from people and basically just crazy with power. Um, And this is one of the times where we actually do see Willard, uh, lash out and lose his cool a little bit because uh, Lawrence Fishburne's character is trying to get fuel from him and he basically is blowing him off because he can't tell him where their destination is and then Mm -hmm. he's also saying like this is a bad time and you know Willard tries to reason with him and the guy basically is like sorry and he uh, you know throws him around a little bit (laughs) throws him down grabs him like very suddenly and it's funny because Martin Sheen is sort of famously not the biggest guy Um, and so you can kind of see why maybe someone wouldn't be particularly intimidated by him but I think he does a good job of seeming very intimidating and the guy seems supposed to the guy seems terrified of him right like as soon as that happens all of a sudden he's like I'm sorry I'm sorry (laughs) like the whole dynamic changes he's like oh I shouldn't be messing with this guy Mm -hmm. um but basically is saying, you know, this is just, you know, sorry, I haven't been able to be more helpful. 
the Playboy Bunny, bunnies are here. He offers them like press box tickets to <laughs> go see um, the Playboy Bunnies, and we find that there's like a there's like an amphitheater at this <laughs> place that has basically been it's constructed. Ridiculous. It's crazy, um, and ends up with a packed amphitheater, like with a sort of USO style show. Yeah. <laughs> I feel bad even calling it that, but yeah, uh, I'm, yeah. like I'm not sure how realistic or i guess unrealistic um mm-hmm. that type of thing would actually be i assume there must be truth to it yeah if they put i kind of figured it probably was realistic yeah. <laughs> like i was not uh, for better or worse it, really shocked by it it felt weird with one of them being dressed up as a native american yeah, yeah. that's that's a thing yep and it, i it was like the culturally appropriating something that we have already conquered in a place that we're trying to conquer again. And this is, I'm bad at years, is it eight years later, five, however many, this is less than a decade after uh, Marlon Brando famously did not uh, show up to accept his Oscar Mm -hmm. for The Godfather and sent a Native American woman on his behalf to accept it to draw attention to the mistreatment of Native American people. So it is kind of you know, I, I, that sort of jumped out at me, too, is like, hmm, okay. So I, it's another thing where I it's probably intentional by mm-hmm. Coppola here being like, these are not the best people in the world, but. I know. think so. He also has the women dance, like, basically mm-hmm. grind on, like. Machine guns and stuff, yeah. yeah. Assault mm-hmm. weapons, which seem, yeah. like, I think if you do that now, it would seem too on the nose. It's right. still very on the nose mm-hmm. in this, but I, I I think it works, that mm-hmm. that bit of it. I, I'm not sure how much this scene really works for me, to be honest. No, it didn't. And I, I was talking about this before we started recording, but oh my God, it just keeps going. Like it's I so keep long. every It goes on so long. And then when I was re-watching it this morning, I'm like, okay, we're at this part. I'm just going like, to skip through. And I kept skipping forward, skipping forward. I'm like, oh my God, it's still going. How have I not escaped <laughs> this scene yet? And I had to keep going until finally, like, I guess to the inevitable end of the scene mm-hmm. where the guys go crazy and start storming the stage and basically the women have to clamor back onto the helicopter and make an escape for it because uh all hell was breaking loose in the amphitheater mm-hmm. there i feel like with the um each part where they go deeper into the jungle mm-hmm. there's like a different sin that the people there have committed against the war mm-hmm. and maybe the first one is thinking that it's like a noble war um, with uh, Kilgore. And this one, it's almost like they just forgot that there's a war going right. on. Yeah, that they're, they're just like, like too isolated in this outpost. Yeah, like we're going to just sell a bunch time. of crap and have Playboys and yeah. stuff. It, yeah. It, yeah, it goes on a while. It does. One uh, quote unquote fun fact that I learned about this scene <laughs> in the. Uh, <laughs> the behind the scenes so I watched one documentary on the special features that was called like Casting Apocalypse Now and I was telling you guys that's where um, I saw Nick Nolte's screen test for the movie Mm. presumably to play Willard it could have been Kilgore but I think it was for Willard hard to say it was just a real hippie looking Nick Nolte with like full shaggy hair and mustache (laughs) and everything so it was really something Um, but the casting director talked a lot about you know, having to cast the extras for, like, the big group scenes. And there's a lot of sort of known stories about how they cast local people um, to play, you know, the, who they at least think were potentially related 
uh, to like the people who would have been there in the real circumstances. But one of the issues they had was how to get a huge group of like white American people for a scene like this. And so both for at the beginning when they first land and there's tons of soldiers there and then for this, they had to cast a lot of um, like local teenagers who were there who were like the kids and family of the cast and crew or who were like attending American schools uh, nearby. So like a lot of the people, like the soldiers are like fully 12 and 14 year olds in two movies back to back. Yeah. Where they just basically had to take. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, but this is a little bit less adorable than the idea of the little kids in business (laughs) in the apartment. Um, But yeah, so I thought that was funny that it's, uh, it's not great or it's kind of, funny to think about in some of the war scenes but it's for some whatever reason even weirder for me to contemplate here like Mm. oh they're cool there were a bunch of teenage boys that were hanging out uh as extras (laughs) in the sequence so yeah so that all falls apart and they uh the show ends and the guys gotta keep going again to go further up the river um it's around this time where it starts getting more into Aguirre type territory, I think, where the um, everybody starts losing, uh, not their minds, but just sort of, yeah, a little bit. They start going a little uh, boat crazy. Um, The chief is, you know, getting sort of frustrated with this whole thing, and Willard starts letting him in a little bit as to what's happening. Um, And this is when uh, it's Lance, right, that starts putting on the face paint, like, mm-hmm. as they're going down the river and they're asking, he's like, oh, no, it's camouflage. They won't be able to see me. It's like, okay, buddy, you do that. Um, and while this is all happening, um, every time they've been on the boat, there's been more of the voiceover with Willard. And he's been reading Kurtz's dossier and basically learning more about try, or trying to learn more about Kurtz and who he is and how he ended up where he is. And he starts, like, really feeling an affinity for Kurtz like before Mm. he meets him because he you know has all these accomplishments and he like basically gave up potential greater success I Mm. guess for what he sees as a more like admirable or I'm not sure why you know basically you know he didn't take the path that would have been his best shot at like highest success right right Um, and so it raises you know he just kind of wonders about him as they are going up and getting closer and closer. Um, and then is when we get to them encountering the family, yeah. <laughs> uh, the Vietnamese family, um, which starts out okay. And then the little girl makes a sudden movement and it spooks uh, poor Mr. Clean Lawrence Fishburne's character and he starts shooting indiscriminately and kills her and we see that she was just trying to get her puppy. And it's, I'm assuming this is where the movie lost you, Dylan, if it hadn't lost you oh, already. Yeah. <laughs> this was the end of the road for you. This broke the that yeah, axis just, so yeah. hard. And especially because there is a very similar scene in Aguirre yeah. where they run across a boat. Yeah. They decide to mm. go check it out. Yeah, and there's something that just suddenly breaks one of the people and they're just mm. like, boom dead um and we've already seen so many people get killed so indiscriminately that i don't feel like this was needed at all and 
it just was like it just felt pointless to me and I did not like how rough they handled that dog. Yeah. Which is a weird thing to say. No, it's but fair. I kind of screamed. <laughs> Cuz they that was a real dog and they were literally pulling it yeah. and I was just like really frustrated with what I was seeing. Yeah. And it I think it just works so much better in Agiri where they snapped and we don't actually see them kill the people. All we see is them start to like pray for their soul as like they bit their heads get forced down mm-hmm. and again it just to me that works on a level that will hit me deeper and also quieter and i don't know i don't i don't really have much to say besides <laughs> i just hated the scene ah, Dylan. all of its entirety we're such such different people <laughs> i know i'm sorry <laughs> i think apologize for it um Maybe other than the final moments of Kurtz, this scene more than any other um, really sums up what the movie is about. And that is, uh, we see these American soldiers and they're being like needlessly aggressive to these people. And they start shouting racial slurs at them. They're dehumanizing them. They scream while they are screaming at them uh, while killing them indiscriminately um, for no real good reason. Um, but then when it turns out that everything is fine, or, I mean, not <laughs> everything's fine, right. but from... That they weren't the, a threat. Yeah, yeah. When, it, when it turns out that the American soldiers at this point will be okay, they know that there's no threat. They know that these people were were just uh, on their boat doing their thing. They're not soldiers. They weren't grabbing. Mm-hmm. They weren't going for a grenade or anything. Um, the one woman is still barely alive, and they suggest they take her to the hospital. Yeah. Their reaction to what Willard does, which is to mm-hmm. kill her, mm-hmm. um, how quickly they turn from being pure adrenaline. Uh, we're going to kill a bunch of innocent people to he killed an innocent person, but because he did it in a way that seems uncouth, uh, they're now like shocked and horrified. Mm -hmm. Uh, That to me is like this movie in a nutshell, like what the movie is saying about the nature of war. And again, like those hypocrisies behind it was okay for them to kill those people, even if they were technically wrong because they thought they were right. Uh, but it's not okay that Willard does it in, in cold blood. So I think yeah. like it's a, it's a brutal scene. Like it's, it's a horrible scene, but I think that's what makes it a great scene. That's fair. My point is it's too far. I feel for like you. every single one. <laughs> yes. That's one of the, but I feel like we've already had those things things stated to us at some point in the movie with either the attack on the village where they just indiscriminately kill citizens or talking about killing Kurtz because he killed people by his definition of the law. Like these are all moments that I already have felt impacted by with that message. And instead of like drawing out the themes from that source that is important to the plot and to the characters. It just felt like it was screamed at me through a needless extra scene 
that if I was the editor, I'd have cut immediately. Doesn't it teach you more about Willard, though, and their relationship? What do I, what, what do I learn about Willard? Well, because he's never he's done anything. Crazy. Like, he's never done anything like that before, though. Like the, but we already know he's killed political people. He's killed indiscriminately while in the war already. So, but we've never seen it, and those guys have never seen it. That's the other thing. Like, there to me, it's not just um, like what he does; it's their reaction to what he does. Like, they see him in a different light now. I guess it's just I, I, I I'm not gonna. I don't think you're wrong. I think I fall just somewhere in really the middle. Um, mm. I, I mostly agree with Nick. I think that what really makes the scene work is the how it ends with the choice that Willard makes and like you said that they're seeing it and it, it it's, is exposing that sort of hypocrisy of oh you know we, we were doing it in the madness of war but when you made a cold calculated decision you know then everyone's traumatized by it um, from a cynical point of view I might also say that well Chef had that moment out in the jungle and so then this had to be the Mr. Clean Lawrence Fishburne's moment to mm-hmm. have something sort of bad happen Um you know, and then we'll get to when uh, Lance makes a mistake of his own coming up next here. So from a cynical standpoint, I think it may have been a yeah. screenwriting perspective to give each one of them a beat of, you know, how the war is messing them up. Um, and, you know, that's not an excuse. I think that's, you know, I just that's, that was my thing. I was like, no, oh, okay. there's no excuse for what happened. Like, But I mean, uh, but I mean I'm just saying I, I'm not justifying that to say it means the scene shouldn't have been cut or anything, but I think that's probably why it's there even if it's a little bit repetitive mm-hmm. is both that it it shows them being freaked out by Willard and also it's just another another beat so that each guy that we see gets to have his own little sad vignette um so yeah but I liked it more or less um don't you know did when I did my rewatch this morning I definitely uh, skipped right through it so I did not want to spend more time with it um but I get why it was there uh, and so they continue back up the water. They have one more stop to make um, as we get almost to Kurtz. Um, they go, so they go ashore. Well, first, they see the soldiers in the water, right? Mm-hmm. Do you remember the part? Like there? the nighttime like they, Yeah, the nighttime when it's dark and there's guys in the water with their guns and they're all screaming. And that was very unnerving to me. Um, with all the soldiers just sort of like you can barely see them in the dark and you can see their guns and things have obviously are not going well for them. Um, and then it's here basically where they go on shore um, to this little section where there's like a line of some kind. Like it seems to where they have this line established. Um, and I think this is where they this is where they pick up the mail, right? Um I think so. the same spot. Yeah. This is their last stop. So I think it's where they pick up the mail and they also spend some time with a group of soldiers um, who are extremely aggressive Mm -hmm. (laughs) and are seemingly pretty messed up by the whole war experience. Yeah. As Um, they get further and further downriver, upriver, whichever uh direction they're going, things get like more and more chaotic. And it like the, the, I guess the summary uh, of where they are now is mm-hmm. when Willard asks one of the soldiers who's the commanding officer mm. and the guy just says ain't you right <laughs> which is yeah, kind of funny they, it, <laughs> I did like that <laughs> yeah I'd forgotten that he asked that about the commanding officer and they I think one of them what they end up actually saying is like there aren't any left 
or something like that. Like, it's sort of maybe implied that all their commanding officers have been killed, and now they're just the ones who are left The commanding behind. officers, the chaos of war. Yeah, pretty much. Um, yeah, and so I, I, that's, I think you're right, that it's basically showing as they get um, closer towards um, what some might call the heart of darkness, uh, <laughs> things are getting worse and worse uh, for all these guys. Mm-hmm. So they're not there for too long. Uh, get back on the boat, and Chef starts handing out letters um, from people from home and so that everyone can, can see their mail, see the letters they've gotten from home. Um, and this is also when Lance is like totally tripping out um i can't remember if he's taken acid or if he's just high or did they if they say what he's did he the night before was it before the uso show at some point it was the night before okay um, when they were getting to the yes he's already been like sort of the chief keeps getting mad at him for being yeah for being it was because he crawls up like into the battlefield Yes, yeah. And so um, now he's, you know, he's still all out of his mind and um, starts, like, dancing around with, like, a smoke flare, you know, thing. And, you know, it's this cool-looking shot and all this colored smoke and everything. And unfortunately, it draws the attention um, of the people whose attention they don't want to be drawing and invites just a brutal attack on the ship and which results in like you were saying our only uh well first we lose young Lawrence Fishburne here who's uh his uh journey has gone from bad to worse and he gets taken down pretty quickly and there's like a mm-hmm. minute where they are going to try to treat him and then they realize he has died um and then there is just the intense arrow spear attack mm-hmm. um which was very agire reminiscent for yes, me yes. because there's that exact like sort of similar sequence down to um poor the chief someone when getting he gets, killed with a spear yeah and then and he literally goes a spear before he dies <laughs> which the one character in agire kind of says something along those lines too spear, about like a long, long spears are, a long spears are in so. fashion yeah um so yeah that's sort of the brutal and for two of our characters here. If I made one, because I, I think I've illustrated some of my just personal um, complaints with the movie. Um, if I do give one technical complaint, <coughs> and I know this is going to sound ridiculous as there's longer versions of this movie, <laughs> but did either of you guys feel like the pace really slowed down and it really could have been edited down heavily this at this section, point section i think is at least on script the biggest drag and i get why all of the stuff that happens happens but i'm kind of with you that basically the stretch from when they leave the playboy bunny show till when they get to kurt's um yes feels a little fillery but i, I think it's you know part of it to show the exhausting nature of the journey um, but no, I cannot imagine watching an hour longer <laughs> version necessarily all either. To me, it's like Lawrence, like the Lance got super drugged up and crazy like the night before when they were in a war zone. Mm-hmm. I feel like you could have combined him getting super drug crazy and drawing fire mm-hmm. 
the last night and maybe killing Mr. Clean there. Yeah. Yeah, or, like, they have, like, he has to have multiple conversations with the chief about... And it it felt like he kept on, like, resolving, like, the chief's... um, Concerns? Worries. Yeah. Um, And it's just, like... At that point, I was just, like... I felt like I was watching a three and a half hour long movie. And so I can't imagine actually watching the three and a half hour long cut of the movie, at least for me. Um, Nick, you, you seem to be staring pretty strongly. No, it goes on a little long. Like, uh, yeah. okay. I mean, <laughs> between the, the scene where the first black guy gets killed and the second black guy gets killed, which is not great. Uh, no, yeah. it's not. It's like those are aren't those two separate battles? Like or two they, separate they're, fight they're scenes? They're back to back, but they're yeah. two separate fights. It's like first they get fire drawn on them by the the smoke, and then they and get then, stuck in the fog or something, right? Yeah. And then exactly then because so it seems one, a little like, redundant. It's a little redundant. I will say though, like when I was watching it, um, <laughs> I forgot I had it written down in between um, the the first. The drawing the fire and Mr. Clean getting killed and then the arrow spear attack. I realized in my notes I just wrote down SMOKE in all capital mm-hmm. letters. But yeah, they basically go through <laughs> um, like we were, we were joking earlier about how I was just going to say things like this movie is pretty, but this is a sequence where it has this like really be- these beautiful shots mm-hmm. of sort of the heavy fog and it's this green blue and it's it really starts leaning into the surrealism yeah. like you know we've said it's all mm-hmm. kind of surreal but it's kind of getting you ready to to you know the movie is to getting get to you ready to get to Kurtz's island yeah. so it's basically it starts feeling that way and so right before the the spear attack is when you see this like blue green smoke and the really synthy score is playing um mm. it's also very Aguirre-ish mm. um and it really has that mood. And then right after that, then they just get attacked with arrows and spears. <laughs> yeah. One thing I do love about um, the second attack scene is after mm-hmm. the chief gets speared, mm-hmm. he tries to pull Willard onto him as he's dying. Yeah. He's trying to yeah. kill him, right? Is he trying to like I think exact so. revenge? I think okay. he is. Yeah. That's, that's how yeah. I took he's it. He's trying too. to pull it on him, yeah. Yeah, it's either exact revenge or be like, this mission needs to stop. It's gone too far or, mm-hmm. you know, it's not worth it. Maybe, um, you know, down to the last couple guys who are left. Yeah. Uh, and I like Chief reacting or not Chief, Chef, Chef reacting to Chief dying yeah. and him realizing that now he's mm-hmm. somehow in command. Basically in charge. Yeah. He's like, the heck am I doing in this situation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, my my notes. I keep having chief chef chief chef problems also mm. <laughs> every time. Um, yeah, and so and he's yeah, and like we said, he hasn't been quite right um, since the tiger attack. Anyway, so yeah, not in great shape. Um, but it's after this where finally they reach Kurtz's island or his little um, fortress compound area, uh, which I noted is with forty five minutes left in the movie is when it gets to this which i think is interesting um and they are met immediately upon landfall by a very energetic dennis hopper um who just really sets the tone and has a whole lot of things to say (laughs) to them as soon as they get ashore what did you guys think about this performance i love it (laughs) i think it's fun i mean it's it's wild it's dennis hopper just like dennis hoppering out um (laughs) But I I liked it. You get the sense that he wasn't acting. 
Right. Exactly. I mean, we there's a, a sort of a like meme that people will say about like, oh, it was very rude not to tell this person that they were in a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really is that like, oh, it's really rude. They didn't tell Dennis Hopper that he was in this movie and they just filmed him wandering, <laughs> wandering around. In and the instead, jungle. all of his like waxing poetically is about uh, Kurtz. It's actually about Francis Ford Coppola. Right, exactly. exactly. Like, He's a poet, man. Yeah. Yeah. He, he brings a, a good, uh, you know, high, high, high level of energy. Well, I think it's that. I think it's he brings this weird energy that we haven't had in the movie. Um, you know, and it's it's the first sort of like big charismatic performance that we, you know, since Robert Duvall, you know, went away. Mm-hmm. Now we have another sort of movie star who's going to bring big energy. Um, and so I... I like that a lot. Do you, do you know who's a movie star that had zero energy and zero role to do in the movie at this point, though? Martin Sheen? No, goddamn Scott Glenn comes oh, in yeah. for one Scott, shot. I was so Doesn't excited. even say a damn word. So I looked at the cast before um, watching the movie, and I love Scott Glenn, so I got really Scott excited. Scott Glenn's the I'm, best. Like, I'm like, they're going to get to the end, Kurtz, yeah. and Scott Glenn's going to be there, and they, like, mentioned this guy who was assigned the mission, and then, like, you know, and they show the picture, aside, and I was like, can't wait to meet him, and then Lily, as I'm watching it, and then they, all of a sudden, he's talking to Kurtz, so I'm like, wait, I thought I was going to see Scott Glenn. I, I didn't even see him. Like, he just was there, and then was gone, and I was like, I saw yeah. him. I just missed him, and so mm-hmm. I... That is fair. I was his performance way. is having a beard and getting the growl on. Yeah, and that's it. Yeah. Um. So I, I, I think that's fair. That is a fair criticism. Is that uh, Scott Glenn should have had more to do? Because I was, I was hoping he would. Uh, and I would have loved to have Willard talk to the person that went on this mission and didn't, right. you know, didn't follow through. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I you instead know. he joined Kurt's side. Right. Exactly. I guess. I guess. His existence is enough to sort yeah. of unnerve us and unnerve Willard and be like, well, wait, what What did he experience or what happened to him that made him make this choice? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So um, Willard gets there and he finally gets to go meet Kurtz and have some conversations with him. What are everybody's Brando takes uh, <laughs> about uh, this? I, I love these scenes. I I love the way they're shot, um, where it's like all, like a mixture of dark and light at once, but not in the way that we typically see in like a film noir. Brando's version of Kurtz is just so weird. Um, he's sort of like a, a slowed down version of the Dennis Hopper character in a way. Um, I I I think he's really fantastic in this. Uh, um, I thought Brando was absolutely terrible. <laughs> terrible. And I thought the That's lighting a... was atrocious. Like they couldn't oh, focus no. the light. On... I'm That's just. I'm absolutely kidding. That seems fucking wild. awesome. Oh. No, I'm kidding. Oh, that that seems. <laughs> that scene is fucking awesome. I'm so sorry, we believed you. We were like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> I, it was one thing when you said he was bad. I was like, okay, all right, let's have this conversation. Then when you're like, the lighting looked bad. I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> <sighs> Look, brain. if Nick can that pull bait and switches me. with Joe's apartment in the beginning of the apartment that podcast, actually scared me. Okay. <laughs> no. Okay. So the first third of this movie, I'm like, this is well made. Duvall's pretty cool. It's a little over the top, but I get it. 
The second third of this movie is like, I'm bored, I'm distressed, I don't like this. The last third is fucking perfect. This is the movie I want the whole time. This was great. This was the movie for me. Like, Brando is awesome. Uh, I think this is when the best of Sheen comes out in his interactions with Brando as well. Um, I thought I was going to absolutely hate Dennis Hopper's character, and he was great. Um, I was genuinely scared this whole whole sequence, um, especially the part where Kurtz bring back Chef's head. Mm, yeah. Like, and like with the face paint, he is like a force of nature. He just drops it. He walks away. And that's like one of the very few times Willard shows actual emotion is him just freaking out at Chef's head at his feet. This, this, this was what I wanted the movie to be, man. This was great. I loved the last third of the movie. So, sorry, I rambled. I feel like Dennis Hopper would be like, there's mines over here, uh, there's mines over here. Um, I did enjoy um, yet another point of Aguirre comparison with a uh, head, a head separate head yes. showing up yep. to uh, <laughs> shock the system a little bit. Um, that that always gets me. Yeah, the dropping of the uh, head mm-hmm. is just, ah. Um, yeah, no, I, I totally agree that basically we talked about sort of the suspenseful nature of the scene before with the tiger, this whole scene from the time they arrived there, I just, I felt that sense of tension the entire time, you know, obviously parts of it, Willard's being, you know, captured and tortured and stuff, and that's no good. Um, but yeah, their conversations are just, yeah, they're just so tense. Um, and I do think it sort of brings out the best of Sheen's performance in, when he's having and these Brando is oh, Brando's. another level. Yeah. He's uh you can see why people put up with his nonsense. <laughs> like with him being Marlon. <laughs> At least Brando. you're gonna get that. Right, exactly. Like it, it 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 does sort of explain why he got away with being like he was for well, so long. Like speak, holy moly. Yeah, speaking of some of his nonsense, there was an interview on one of the bonus features um, that Coppola did with Soderbergh. Mm-hmm. And he says that he talks to Brando when he gets there and he'd like put on a bunch of weight. So they were like trying to reimagine how they want to do this character. And they're like, oh, Coppola's like, oh, I think you should have a shaved head. And Brando's like, well, in the book, I don't think that that makes sense for this guy. So they're, they, they like waste a whole bunch of actual like full days, like almost a week because they're trying to like figure out what they need to do. And then five days later, he said, Brando shows up to set the totally shaved head. And he's like, oh, I thought you said uh, this character wouldn't do that. And he's like, no, I lied. I hadn't read the book until last night. But you were right. <laughs> that's so good. <laughs> so that's kind of uh, Brando, that is very, Brando the yeah. nightmare. That is very. I do like, though, that he tried to uh, pull that card of, mm-hmm. well, no, I, I read the book. And I don't yeah. think he would do it that way. <laughs> it's like, okay, never mind. I actually... Did it? No, I I can't imagine that character. I mean, I just can't imagine that character not looking like that. Yeah. Right. He, like, he I mean, what would like it even? He has to look like that. I don't even know how that would play otherwise. Um. So yeah. Um. Love this sequence. Um. I, I think there's a real, or at least there was for me, a real sort of sense that I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know mm. what Willard was going to do. It wasn't necessarily clear to me. Mm-hmm if he would complete his mission, if he would just stay, if I, I had no idea, you know, basically up until 
the final moments um, when Willard decides to go through with it, um, I wasn't sure until the very end. And so I think it worked well for me. And when he goes through with it, it's really um, with tacit permission almost from Kurtz to kill him. Kurtz knows what his mission is. Mm -hmm. Um, And he He lets it happen. Yeah, he leaves him alive and free so Mm -hmm. that he can do it and he would rather I think they say he would rather die like a soldier than yeah. I don't know yeah he just but he, yeah, he, I guess he basically gives him the choice and it's mm-hmm. just yeah he leaves him to, to make the choice and he's gonna if that's what's gonna happen that's what's gonna happen um, it, you know it felt like well for one because she goes to so much trouble with like the camouflage and mm-hmm. like the sneaking around and he also starts to like understand before he even does that mm-hmm. like yeah kurtz will just let me kill him if right. i want to yeah and it almost becomes like a play it's 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 an entire like show that they're putting on almost of you know if he's going to die i'm going to do it I'm in gonna, the way I'm of a soldier the role. if right. yeah and that completely feels like a metaphor of how you know soldiers at every stage in this war mm-hmm. how crazy they are like they all kind of realize in some form it is crazy but they're just gonna play their role mm-hmm. and so to see willard completely take it over in this awesomely shot final scene mm-hmm. it was like why did i have to see so many repeated things of people playing their roles when we could just do that yeah well i, I think if I ever watch Apocalypse Now again, I'm only ever watching that last third. I think, but I do think that what, you know, what you were observing about it is part of what gives it its power, that you just, you do see it over and over again. Yeah. It's not, you know, I don't know that it has the weight. If you just get to, if you just get to the end and you're like, oh, okay, this guy is just a, a cog in the machine of war. It's they're all cogs in the machine of war. Yeah. You know? so I just you say. Sort of have to, you have to earn it, again, man. That was the only part where that really affected me. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a it's effective. Mm-hmm. It's great. Yeah, and you know, then there's just a, in the final moments um, after he has killed Kurtz, um, he basically um, you know gathers up. He told Kurtz, you know, he would tell his story basically, mm-hmm. or at least get in touch with his family. And so he gathers up Kurtz's papers and things and makes his way out. And again, I didn't know. I was like, what's gonna? Are these people? Are they gonna take him down? Are they gonna try to kill him because he killed their leader? And no, they uh, basically are like, oh, okay, yeah, the king is dead, long weapons. live the king kind of thing, and lay down their weapons and defer to him as, and let him just make his way out. Um, you know, and Willard gets Lance back, and they get back on the boat, and God knows what the rest of either of their lives are going to be like at Jeez. that point. Literally can't imagine. Um, but it has this very... I think purposefully anticlimactic sort of melancholy ending. You know, he mm-hmm. finishes his job and just decides to leave. Um, and the people put down their weapons and let him go. And, you know, you just sort of watch it quietly all end. Uh, what did you think of how it ended, Dylan? I like how it like, ended. Yeah. I like how it it doesn't matter what happens to these people. survivors that had to go on this mission um and i don't really care what happens to willard honestly um i think you can know it's nothing good so (laughs) yeah 
whatever it is mm-hmm. and he completed his mission and he completed it in a way that i felt was a well-made way of him doing it and yeah uh nick there's something i want to ask you because yep. when we were chatting recently about another movie um you mentioned how apocalypse now you 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 said you didn't like the water buffalo inner cut yep is that correct nope. i mean you're correct i don't like it Hmm. why uh because it was really a water uh, an actual water buffalo getting cut mm-hmm. in half and i yep. don't that's one of my things i yeah. don't want to see an animal get chopped in half <laughs> i, I think i think that that's a fair axis. thing yeah i think that's a fair thing yep. god why yep. so why so sensitive nick yeah. <laughs> you don't like to watch animals be cut in half god yeah i feel horribly uncomfortable watching that scene yeah yeah that's uh it's no good um you know there's a few of these movies where i've sort of made the comment that you're not going to see the no animals were harmed at yep. the uh, <laughs> end of the sequence because yikes. Um, yeah, not good stuff. Um, but a couple of notes about the ending. I don't know, Nick, if you saw him talk about it in any of the special features, but there was like this accidentally self-made controversy about the ending oh, yeah, that Coppola created. One, because when he showed it at can i guess he like he screened it and then after the initial screening he said he made some changes to the ending before he rescreened it and it made everyone like freak out and it turns out he had like added or taken in like a couple frames or something like nothing significant but it started this rumor <laughs> and then when it played in theaters originally it was a 70 millimeter roadshow kind of production like only tarantino does anymore where it filmed it plays without trailers or anything and the idea is the people in the audience they get a pamphlet with all the cast and crew and credits and so you don't need credits to play at the end and so it ended basically just like it does where it you know he sails away and it fades out and that's the end of the movie but they had when they were filming the movie at the end of it um, they had all this footage that they had shot of Kurtz's compound blowing up um, because the rules that they had with the local government was, okay, you can build this set, but you got to take it down when you leave because it's not structurally safe. <laughs> and if you leave it there, it's going to kill somebody. So they were like, well, we have to take it down. Let's blow it up and film it. It'll look really cool. So they did. And so when the movie went to wide release, it was put on 35 millimeter and credits were added because in wide releases, they don't do the program thing. And so Coppola goes, you know what? Look, that footage looked really cool. (laughs) So what I'm going to do is over the credits, I'm just going to play all that footage of the compound blowing up. And he thought it was just like cool, artistic B-roll. Audiences, I think fairly, thought, oh, my God, Willard called in the airstrike and murdered all those people. (laughs) And so it made it seem like the a wildly different tonal ending. And basically Coppola had to apologize and take it back out because he was like, oh, I just thought it looked neat. I didn't realize people would think it was actually the plot of the He's like, the movie was over. I don't know what they thought that was. <laughs> and so he uh, accidentally confused legions of moviegoers by putting in footage of the compound blowing up. And so he was saying in these interviews, you know, very definitively, no, Willard did not call in the airstrike. Everyone laid down their weapons, and he left, uh, and he felt bad that he could confuse people about it, <laughs> which I think is kind of hilarious. Because like what I mm. <laughs> like what it's just a thing to like brought that on yourself. What did you what did you think audiences were gonna think of it <laughs> if they see footage of the thing blowing up? They're thinking they're watching the movie, and the stuff blew up. 
Um, But anyway, so that was one of the sort of funny, other funny things from behind the scenes. The only other note, and you guys figure out all of your other things we haven't talked about, um, was that the scene at the way back at the beginning with um, Harrison Ford and the other guy when they give him the mission? Did you guys see what their characters' names are? No, no. So, um, the other guy in the room with Harrison Ford, who's also talking, who's the Lieutenant General, um, he is credited as Lieutenant General R. Corman. Mm. And Harrison Ford is credited as Colonel G. Lucas. Oh, so funny. it's George George Lucas and Roger, Roger Corbin. Corbin. Shout outs uh, nice. with those character names. I thought was cute. Wow. Yeah. Way to go. These guys, George Lucas, they, Lucas and Coppola were uh, good buds uh, mm-hmm. back in the day. And Spielberg. So, and Spielberg. And they were on their own little rat pack there. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yep. So that was it. Do you guys have any other things we haven't talked about that you wanted to make sure we covered? I think we were pretty yeah. thorough. Yeah, I think we. Yeah. <laughs> Dylan's like, we're good. Let me go. I never want to talk about Apocalypse Now again. Uh, all right. Oh, oh, sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm not going to let you go that quickly. We didn't talk Oscars, guys. Apocalypse oh, Now. Oh, yeah. I wanted to talk about this because I have you. beef. Yeah, sorry. I can't believe I almost let us finish without talking about the Oscars. Jesus, who am I? Okay. So, <laughs> Apocalypse Now was nominated for one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight Oscars. Eight? Oh. Eight. Yes. I thought on the Wikipedia it said ten. I think it's eight. Best okay. Picture, Director, Supporting Actor, Adapted Screenplay, Sound, Art Direction, Cinematography, and Film Editing. And oh, it okay. won for um, sound and cinematography. And I feel good about that. Um, sure. Oh, we're good. So I feel pretty good about that. Um, I wish, what's his, what's his name? Oh, sorry. Coppola? Um, Duvall. <laughs> Robert Duvall would have won. He lost to Melvin Douglas in Being There, which I haven't seen. People like that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I like Being There a lot. That's yeah. a Dylan movie. Yeah, I was going to say that sounds like a more of a you movie. Um, and then uh, this was the Kramer versus Kramer year. So that's Boo. what. absurd. Um, yeah, Boo. that's what took picture, director, and actor, which is and screenplay wild. and supporting actress. Yeah, yeah. Meryl Streep is supporting. I haven't seen Kramer versus Kramer. Is she supporting? Yeah, she's supporting. Kind okay, of. she is. Okay, well, that's just another reason for me not to see it. This um, one will be one that you would debate about whether or not they're a supporting character or just second, second lead. lead. Yeah. Um. All right. So yeah, that's wild, and it just couldn't go undiscussed what do you guys think of kramer versus kramer it's f- i haven't seen it it's fine it's pretty good. i almost yeah, it's saw pretty good it during because i was i was so all in on marriage story that mm-hmm. i kind of wanted to see kramer versus kramer for the point of comparison but um, it's not worth it that's kind of the I, I think it might cross my line of just like this is unpleasant and i don't want to watch this which i have more with like people being mean to each other yeah. than i do with like yeah violence or anything marriage story is much ah, better yeah. i think yeah. Yes. So so much better. We got, we were pushing two hours here. Um, Ebert quotes. Did you guys pick out uh, yep. your lines? Nick, what did you have? Mine is the very last uh, couple lines, which is, if we are lucky, we spend <laughs> our lives in a fool's paradise, never knowing how close we skirt the abyss. What drives Kurtz mad is his discovery of this. Which, yeah, I Kurtz. really like that. The one I pulled was sort of the similar point he makes at the beginning 
when he says, what is found at the end of the journey is not Kurt so much as what Kurt's found, that all of our days and ways are a fragile structure perched uneasily atop the hungry jaws of nature, which will thoughtlessly devour us. A happy life is a daily reprieve from this knowledge. Uh, Ebert was really feeling this one. <laughs> mm. <laughs> you guys picked the two quotes I had. <laughs> They're the two good. I mean, they're not the two good ones. He had a lot of interesting things to say, but um, Mm -hmm. I think those, yeah, two were pretty much the good wrap-ups of of his takes. So, all right, thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs up. Where'd you fall, Dylan? Thumbs up. All right, and then out of four, it's it's a it's a four stars for me. Same. Yeah, same for me. Okay. I came into this thinking I was going to give it a three, but I'll go three and a half. Yeah, we that did was it. a good yeah, conversation. Yeah, we, we dragged it up a half star. I will take Just it. Just like I did with Nick last yeah. time. There you go. All right. Well, thank you so much to everyone for joining us this week. Make sure to join us next week. Dylan, why don't you tell everyone what we're going to be talking about next week? Oh, boy. Here we go. We're talking about the Apu trilogy, which is... Um, a let me get the year up specifically um it's a 50s um indian trilogy uh it seems like 55 through 59 um the trilogy is directed by satajit ray um and mainly just kind of tells the story of a young man throughout his years um kind of like boyhood but much better much better anyway. mm, we'll say well, I have Boyhood at a three out of five on Letterboxd, oh, so. Lordy guy, come on. <laughs> all right, well, that's that's a fight for another day. Um, all right, so yeah. until sorry, until next week, just getting a last minute dig there. Until next week when we talk about the Apu trilogy, you can follow us on both Twitter and Letterboxd at Great Movies Pod. Uh, we want to thank you, as always, to our friend Scott Brady for our artwork. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at sbradyartist. And that is it for all of us this week. Roger out. Roger out. Roger out. Bye, guys. And when I go to the movies, I am that person on the screen. I am having vicariously an experience that happened to someone else. And that makes me a better person. That to see good films and to see important films is one of the most profoundly civilized experiences that we can have as people.